You're listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. For someone to explain. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Welcome to episode number nine of the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer. Uh, joining me today is Reed Malby. Uh, Reed is a 26-year veteran coach with a master's degree in sport behaviour and performance and a master's degree in education. He's coached at all levels of the game uh, in soccer, uh, from age five recreation players to adult professional athletes. He's spent time coaching in high school soccer, collegiate soccer, Olympic development for the USSF and in the NPSL professional ranks. He's ran performance camps, worked as a teacher, and is currently on a mission to help change the culture of youth sports in America by empowering coaches through a more multidisciplinary approach to educating children, focusing on coach communication, athlete empowerment, ethics in sport, and developing champions beyond the game. He writes for Soccer Nation, Amplified Soccer, and several other magazines. Uh, He's also appeared on TEDx and is also about to have a book coming out titled What's Your Echo?, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, Reid. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. Um, you know, this is a, a rugby podcast, obviously, uh, but just the, the topics that you cover, um, we were talking a bit off air there. Um, there's so much crossover into uh, different disciplines, like all, all sporting disciplines, but even education. Um, so, yeah, we're really stoked, really stoked to have you on the show and can't wait to delve into a bit of that. Before we do, what's what's your backstory? How have you how have you gotten to where you, where you are? There's a few master's degrees in there. There's obviously a, a big soccer background. What's what's your backstory? So I was a soccer player growing up. I did play rugby for a year or two in high school, uh, but I, I played most of the sports. I was one of those multi-sport athletes. Uh, when I was 16, my high school coach uh, pulled me aside one day and said, I, "I want you to do something. I want you to coach this team of of U8 boys." And and I. I must have had that look of fear in my eyes. And he yeah. said, look, I, I see something in you that I want you to give back to the game. And he said, more importantly, I think once you realize what it's like to be on the sideline of the game, the way you view the game will change. It'll make you a better player. So that was sort of his pitch to me to get me in. Yeah. I coached that team that year, and I, I just never stopped. Uh, with with my mentor who got me into it, I did camps every summer all through high school and college. That was how I made my extra money was, was traveling around the country with him doing camps. And, of course, in our downtime, he trained me. Uh, I played collegiately. And when I got out of – when I was in college, uh, I was still doing camps and coaching. And I actually ended up coaching our women's club team at the school I was at. And so, of course, of course I continued to stoke the fire. So as I was leaving the collegiate ranks and trying to decide what to do next with my life, I decided to go get a master's instead of continue with my career. Yep. Because I just, the passion was there. I, I realized that at some point in time for me, the game would end. And uh, I thought that master's was important to have because I could I could be a better coach than I could at that point a player. I thought I could give more to the game being a coach. So I went to get a master's at my university uh, focused on coaching. Uh, we studied the works of Coleman Griffith and uh, some of the, you know, the original sports psychologists talking about coaching, uh, me high chick sent me high on finding flow and all the aspects yeah. of that. So it was a, it was a really good multidisciplinary approach to how we create better performing athletes, but I was really honed in on the mental side. All right. Uh, and then I, I've been, like I said, I've been coaching since 16 over the years, worked my way up through the ranks of clubs, 
across the country, either doing uh, as, as just an on-staff coach or as a DOC, director of coaching. I currently am the executive director of, of Star Soccer Club, so I run the whole club. Uh, I have a group of probably about 30 coaches, 35 to 40 coaches that that, that answer, that work with me, that I, I collaborate with them. I, I provide them all the resources they need to succeed in their jobs and, and can continuing education. And then I also run a lot of uh, internal camps and clinics for our children and our clubs so that they're increasing their skill levels. And roughly five years ago, I said, you know, if I'm going to do this, I might as well start looking at it from an educational perspective. So my wife talked me into going back and, and getting a second master's, this one in, in early childhood education. Yep. Those two degrees I use more every day than anything else I've, I've done in, in my life. That's uh, right. And it's, you know, and it's, it, it's one of my things I talk a lot about is I, I wish coaches were treated more like professionals and given more tools than just here are the X's and O's. Here's how you set up a training session. Have at it. We do a very good job of, of creating coaches who understand the game. But so many coaches are saying, I wish I understood children. I wish I could yeah. speak to them properly. Yeah. I wish, you know, that stuff. Totally agree. So that's the story. That's, that's right. where we are today. Fantastic. Uh, well, that's great. And, you know, uh, I was just before the interview, I was uh, having a look through your website and uh, noticed one, uh, well, one of your main statements there is uh, your goal is to imp- empower players to have the courage to fail, uh, honesty to admit it, and fortitude to fix it. I, I think that's a, that's a great line. And just wondering if you could explain uh, a bit more about that in detail and a bit more about, I suppose, the genesis of that, that, that line that you use. Sure. And it, uh, we, like I said, we had our, uh, we had a big club tournament this past weekend. So I have a lot, watch a lot of soccer. And one of the things that I, you would see once in a while, and it was even said by a colleague of mine is the kids that play in fear. We were watching this game and it was a, a very skilled team and they knew how to play the game. But they were losing four or five to nothing because the, these boys, every time they did something, they looked over to the bench and everything they did. And as my colleague said, he says, boy, they're just playing in fear. Yeah. And it's it's because these kids knew, and you could hear it, you knew every time they made a mistake, that coach would scream out their name and tell them what they did wrong and, and heads would drop. And at halftime, I didn't, I didn't go near the bench at halftime, but my colleague was walking through. Uh, the bench area to drop something off to the field marshal, and he said, "Boy, he was just lighting them up, Reed. He just, he was relentless. You, you did this wrong, and you did this wrong, and I don't ever want to see you do this again. And you, you lost, you caused that one goal because you made this mistake. That is really the. That's where the statement came from. Was yeah. over the years how, how, how old were those kids? Uh, they were U ten, so they were nine years old. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's that's yeah. It, it makes me sad. Yeah, it, you absolutely. Know, it, it's, I'm with you too. I, I just sometimes I just I just all you can do is sit there and laugh and say, "Oh my gosh, they're, they're not pro players yet." Yeah. But that, so that was where the the over the last three or four years I started using that that sentence again and again because I, I wanted our coaches to understand that children have to explore, they have to try. That's the only way they learn. They if 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 we allow them to have that courage to go ahead and take risks on the field, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to fail. That's okay. But if they know that when they fail, we're not going to scream at them. We're not going to sub them out and punish them. We won't humiliate them in front of their friends. We'll let them have a moment or even talk with them. If we do take them out later, talk with them and let them have the honesty to say, oh, yes, I see where I messed up, coach. I should have, you know, first goal in that game, ball was passed back to the keeper, which it was the right move. And it was a, a brilliant for that age. It was a brilliant thing to do to reset the play and try to rotate the, the, the attack to the, different, the other side of the field. But the keeper's first touch was dead at his feet, straight down, head down, and this forward came in, attacked him, took it off his foot, and scored. And the coach, instead of talking to him about what he could have done 
to make it, you know, to, to have a better touch, to, to use a positive touch to his side, to push it out into space, open his hips to the backside of the field and release it before the defender got there. The coach just yells at him, you stopped it dead at your feet, don't ever do that. And so he didn't allow the kid, one, he won't have the courage to fail again, two, he didn't give that kid the honesty or the time to think about what did I do wrong and how could I do it differently or even work through it. You know, what did you do wrong? What do you think you could do differently? What would be the result if you did it this way instead? Now that kid's questioning, he's thinking, he's analytical. And so he's starting to become a problem solver in the game. And then the final piece, and this is the one that where most of us as adults mess up when we're coaching, we immediately punish them. And so we never give them the chance to fix that mistake. We either pull them out of the game, we tell them don't ever do that again, whatever it is, but what we've done is we've limited that risk behavior. And now those kids don't have the ability to fix what they did wrong. And it, it'd be akin to in math class, hitting the buzzer every time a kid gets a question wrong saying, wrong, you're never gonna learn that. Wrong, you don't know multiplication, let's move on to you know, addition. Or wrong, you, you don't know how to do that, so you're never gonna you're never gonna be good at math. We don't do that. We give them work training constantly when they mess up teachers walk them through the process look at your work where do you think you made the mistake there's where you made the mistake do it again yeah i think i think there's a couple of great things out there like you talk about uh coaches not being prepared for 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 coaching in certain areas and there's a perfect example and this this crosses over you know to all sports not just soccer but obviously definitely rugby but all sports um i think one of the skills of of being a good coach is is trying to find those teaching moments when you get them, they're pretty rare, and it's it's really important to jump on them. And that's that's a moment there where that that one kid or that one athlete can 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 gain something out of a mistake and, and build from it. Yeah, definitely. And you being a teacher, you understand that. That I think a lot of times what it is is these coaches are just not prepared. And if they knew better, if they knew, if they had had any kind of education based background like you, they would have said, "Wait a minute, this is a teaching moment. I can actually use this to help a child grow and learn." Versus shut that child down. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just uh, just on the, the the risk, encouraging kids to take risk. I think uh, anyone who's right now, I don't know if you've watched much of it, read, but the the greatest sporting event in the world's happening, uh, the Rugby World Cup, and um, there's been some amazing rugby, and a lot of it is high risk rugby. The teams that have gotten through to to the finals, Australia, and New Zealand, and and the semi final in Argentina. Uh, they played a very, very high-risk, high-reward game, uh, and it's it's amazing to watch. But from a coaching point of view, to coach a high-risk, high-reward uh, game, you've got to also be putting them in an environment where they can they can fail and they can fix it, and uh, you know admit their failure and all of that. So it goes back to that line, absolutely. Oh, definitely. I, I watched a little bit of it, and I I love the fact that the coaches have created that kind of environment. That was that was my coach growing up. Always said. You, you use the exact phrase, high risk, high reward. We have to take chances because that's where the greater rewards are. But he did it in training. He yeah. created this yeah. these training effects. And I was just in a meeting with uh, uh, Ohio South U Soccer Group, which is one of the – it's the state governing body for U, you know USYS. And one of the presidents asked me what my opinion was on some of the training we're doing. And I said, we're not scaffolding. We're not drawing from education and scaffolding the educational process where we're chunking things and teaching children in less risky environments to learn something so they have some moments of success and then layering in the constraints that make it more complex and scaffolding that learning process as they get better and better. 
that's what the great coaches are doing because that's what creates the high risk environments because they start simple, but then in the training becomes more and more intense and the skill becomes more ingrained at these intense levels. And they start playing quote unquote, like it would be in the game. They simulate the game and train. And so you see these really intense high pressure training sessions where players are risking and failing, but we're correcting the failures and then they get in the games and it's second nature. Yeah. But that started because the coach was smart enough to begin simple and build on that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the coach absolutely drives that and it's, it's can't be, can't be uh, underestimated at all. One, one of the things that also, um, that, jumped out of me uh for the work that you you've been doing was um you, the statement uh the words you use have a longer lasting and deeper impact than any skill you teach what, what do you mean by that so my angelou says that it's not always the words but the feelings that come that are evoked when somebody says something that you'll remember but as an athlete i had to slightly disagree with her just because i still to this day remember things that were said by my coaches mm. the exact words the exact moments why they were said and what impact they had. And when I gave my TEDx, that was the whole point of it was as coaches, even as parents, as CEOs of companies, whatever it is you're doing, everything you say matters. Words matter. And for children, those words actually cause changes in the brain. And these children, they remember those. They associate feelings. They associate moments. They associate senses with words. I mean, they can smell the fresh cut grass from a Saturday morning 20 years ago and what you said in that moment. And so we have to be very careful about the things we say because we may think it's just a word and we may just be spouting off. But to that child, they've absorbed that and they've used that word to form an opinion of themselves or an opinion of their abilities. And they've used it to sort of project their future selves. And so I, the other thing that I like to say is that our words are the echoes those children hear when they're alone and dreaming of who they might be someday. And so if you're telling a child constantly, you're useless, you're a waste, you fail, you, 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 know, you disappoint me, then that's what the child thinks about when he's sitting alone someday going, what am I going to be someday? Oh, yeah, those words useless and failure and disappointment arise. But if you're telling a child, I believe in you and, hey, that's great work and I love your work ethic and, boy, you have such zeal for the game and whatever it is you're telling a child, if you're using positive words, when they sit down later, if those are words that they can attach to something that they can physically control like work ethic. That's what they think about when they're, they're thinking of the future selves. A coach said that I work hard, and so I'm always going to work hard for it. I'm always going to put my everything in everything I do because coach believes in me. And so that's what that whole idea is, is someday the game's going to end. It, it did for all of us. Mm. And once it does, that's when we start to really remember what our coaches said about us and that those, the things that our coaches said don't just attach to the game. They attach to us as people. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and I think uh... – just looking at it from a from a rugby point of view, one of the biggest challenges that faces rugby in, you know, all across the world is is retention of athletes. Um, what what traditionally we see, and you, you might might have the same thing happening in soccer as well, is that we're we're getting athletes playing in high school, and then they they play a little bit in college, but there's a big bit of a drop off, and then getting them into senior men's or senior women's rugby. Um, there's a massive drop-off, and I, I think what you're speaking about there would have a, a major impact on that. It does. It, it drives them out of the game, and then, you know, like the idea of the skills fading. Someday, I, I don't remember all the skills I was taught by my coach. My body can't do all the skills I was taught when I was 12, but I certainly remember the words. And we, we do have the same problem here. We have we have about a 70% loss rate uh, or, or – um, attrition rate by the age of 14 or 15, yeah. 70% of our athletes wow, that start great. at the younger ages quit the game. In soccer, over a five-year period, we lost 1.2 million children to the game. That's a lot. And that's, 
That's larger. You're up in the east, right? Yep. So that's larger than some of those states. It's larger yeah. than the state of Rhode Island. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big, big chunk of players, you know, and uh, I think uh, I think all all sports can do a better job of that for sure. So for coaches wanting to kind of have a bit of a bit of a framework about, you know, the words they use and, and what are what are some good examples and what are some obviously bad examples? Do you, do you have like a, a kind of framework that they can base base it off that they can? They can really carefully think about how they talk to their athletes. Uh, I don't know if I use a framework. I, I write a lot of articles about you know children think literally and not figuratively, so be mm-hmm. careful about sarcasm. Yeah. Uh, try not to use figures of speech because they don't get it. I told a group of children one time. Uh, I call them in. I called them over under your tree because we're going to sit down and take a rest during a really hot camp, take a water break. <laughs> and you tell people grab a seat. Well, we're not on. We were on a field, so I said grab some grass. And they're all five years old, and they reach down and they all grab handfuls of grass. You know, it's like, oh, they're so literal. <laughs> uh, so you know, I, I coaches need to be very careful about figurative speech. They need to be very careful about placing children in the moment and make it relevant to them. Because yeah. if you say something like, if you're coaching a team of eight year olds and they're playing and their name of their team is Chelsea and you say, Oh, I hate Chelsea. And they overhear that. They're going to think you mean them. They're not going to think about the larger pro team. They've just associated with them. So they're very concrete. They're very in the moment. They're very self-centered quote. I don't mean it that way that, you know, the ego is at the center right now. So you have to be very careful about how you use words. One of the things I, I do tell my coaches is, you know, there's the idea of the, of the, uh, criticism sandwich, where you say something positive, something negative, something positive. Yeah. The problem with children is, is they latch on to just that negative, and that's yeah. all they remember. They don't yeah. remember what you said before and after. And I've, I've decided over the last few years that I just don't use anything negative with the children because of this whole brain growth thing that, that Mark Robert Waldman has been researching about, the fact that positive words do much greater good for the brain. So what I do is I create what's called a swirl. And for a while there, I was calling it like an ice cream swirl, but now I think of it of, of the whole Mary Poppins thing of, uh, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Yep. It's the idea that we sweeten it so that they don't even taste the criticism. And so when I talk to children, I, I always sweeten it with a lot of positivity. And my point is in there, but they don't, it's not a negative point to them. Mm. So for instance, uh, it, child has a clear, wide open shot, takes an extra touch. And then that, by that time, the defender takes the ball off his foot. And so I might say, hey, Johnny, man, that was a great job. You got into the box. You set yourself up really well. What, could, what else could you have done? I could have shot. What do you think would have happened if you just shot? I might have scored. Oh, man, that would be so great. So I believe in you. I know you can score in that moment, but I want you to take that risk next time. Show me, and let's see if it does create a goal. Yeah. So I criticized him. I told him that I wanted him to shoot, but I didn't just yell, oh, you idiot, why didn't you shoot? And the other thing I did was – I got him thinking. I was analytical with him. I questioned him. I asked him to answer a question. And you know this as an educator. When children are asked to, prob- to answer questions, they become problem solvers. And that's what we want on the field. If you want your players to be great at the next level, get them to start evaluating, analyzing the game themselves, not joysticking them. I could tell him to shoot. And I could say, you idiot, you should have shot. And now I've used negativity. And I've told him exactly how I want him to play the game. And so every time he does something, he's going to look over to me to ask what to do next. Or I could get him to think about the game himself and analyze the game and give him multiple choice opportunities or open-ended questions and then let him become the one that's solving the game. And I can sit down and shut up and let him play. Yeah, I think think that's a great – some great examples there and like – uh, I like the the use of uh, the push pull with the questioning. I think that's absolutely key for for good coaching, um, and I definitely see that like 
I'm based in Canada, so a lot of my kids will come from a, a football background. And early on, you know, with a new group of, of kids playing rugby, they'll automatically turn to me at every situation in the game and say, what do we do? Because that's what they've been trained to do in a football setting. It's a, a very coach-centred sport, in my opinion. Although people like Pete Carroll uh, seem to be um, breaking away the mould there. But I, I think that like just making them decision makers and problem solvers on the field is is absolutely key most definitely and and it's amazing how much the growth it's the growth is so much more prolific once they start problem solving the development that word development that we all use is amazing once you get them to start questioning themselves and each other and in analyzing the game their growth is just exponential compared to what i could do as a joystick coach yeah yeah i like that term joystick coach too that's a that's a good one Right, right. A lot of a lot of coaches will be will be listening to this and saying, "Well, you know, I coach adults. This probably doesn't apply to me." Uh, what, what do you What do you think about that? And what, what are there any key uh, apart from the the egocentric kind of framework that you're talking about with uh, kids at that age? Uh, are there any key differences between communicating with adults and kids? Uh, just that we can be a little bit more figurative. Or, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, we can be a little bit more figurative with our with our adult players, yeah. and and actually, uh, I like working with the, with the adult players. I've worked with the Cincinnati Saints this past year, and they're a they're a pro team in yep. Cincinnati. Okay. So the, I actually worked with a lot of colleagues. I had fellow directors of coaching and club leaders on this team that were younger than me, but were quote unquote colleagues. These are guys I stood next to on the sidelines during games that we were coaching. Mm. And so it was an awkward situation. And what I realized with these guys is they just want to be treated the same way. They want to be treated as a player, but they want to be respected. And I was really worried about when I would give them correction, would they be like, Oh, why is Reed telling me what to do? I'm a DOC. I know what I'm doing. So I always, again, couch things in that analytical nature. Hey, you know, Ryan, man, that was, I really like what you were doing in the midfield. What else can we do to maybe crack the defense? And I, and one of them was a very, very intelligent central midfielder. And he would come to me at halftime. And instead of me telling him what to do, he would come over and say, we're struggling with this. And I'd say, Ryan, what do you think? How, how are you seeing it on the field? Because you're the one doing the work. How can we do it differently? What would help us? And then he would sit and he would say, oh, we should do this. And then we should do this. And then we do this. And I wasn't the head coach. So I'd turn and say, go tell Coach Dave that. And I, so, so again, I empowered him to sort of think through the game himself. I did it selfishly because I realized this guy is very intelligent in the game. And anything I tell him, he's going to be like, why is Reed telling me what to do? I know this already. But at the same time, I got him to be very analytical about the game. And so with adults, even at high school age, those kids, if you draw them in and ask their opinion, if you ask them to evaluate the game, then they begin to become empowered to really understand the game deeper. I used to do in high school when I had my captains at halftime, I'd pull my captains over and I'd say, I tell the team, you guys decide two or three things that we need to adjust for the second half. And then I'd walk away from them. And then I'd pull my captains over and I'd say, captains, what is your opinion? What are you seeing? And then I'd go back and instead of tell them what they did right and wrong, I would say, here's what we see. Here's what your captains have said and here's what you guys have said. So here's the adjustments we're going to make based on what you have decided. And when you empower people to do that, each game, those captains got better. And each game, the players themselves got better because they were like, wow, I have the power to make decisions here. So I'm going to really think this through. And they, they, they started becoming very analytical about the game. And it was amazing some of the stuff that would come out of these kids' mouths. Even the youngest ones, the freshmen, the 14-year-olds, they would see things that I even didn't see because they were spending the entire first half as they were playing saying, what can we do differently? How can we adjust this? How can we fix this? Because coach is going to ask me and I better be able to figure this out. Yeah, that's great. I'm totally stealing that uh, that halftime one for sure. That's uh, you've got such a limited amount of time there. You got in rugby, we've got ten minutes in that halftime break, 
and you got to you got to make that work for you. And I think that's a that's that's a, I do something similar, but not as good as that. And I I'm I'm stealing that. So thank you. <laughs> Go right ahead, man. I'm honored. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think one of the things out of that is a lot of coaches struggle with the the full athlete centered player empowerment model because they feel it's their role as a head coach to to control all the pieces and and that that maybe they feel like they're giving up power. Um, what 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 do you say to that? Well, the problem is is they play the game. Yeah. So for, for me, for you, it's, just, it's their feet and hands. For me, it's their feet. And if I disempower them to the point where they don't even feel like they have the power to play the game, they're going to spend their game looking over to me or looking over to the parent side, looking for the answers. And they're not going to feel like it's their game and it's going to feel like work and they'll burn out and leave because it's no longer, there's no longer a passion, a joy there. Yeah. So it is a fine line because I do want, I don't want to be totally di- dictatorial, but I do want to still have the power. And so by, but what you find is by empowering those children, they don't feel like you don't matter to them anymore. No. What they feel like is that you're the one that coordinates that. So instead of them saying we can do this on their own, they say things like, well, let's ask coach. Hey, coach, if we ran such and such formation, would that matter? Would it not? Now I've got a teaching moment because we can talk about formations and stack tactics and style of play. But I also they gave the power back to me to make the final decision. And it's an accountability piece. That's the other thing I really like about empowering the players a little bit more of course at the higher levels they're more sophisticated so it's easier but the more i question them and empower them to play the game themselves now there's there's an accountability piece because i can say to them and, and this is where it's important for my captains you said you wanted to do this i'm holding you accountable because this was your decision you know at the beginning of every season my captains drove what the goals were for the team were and what our you know team philosophy was or whatever it was and anytime that we had a breakdown like in rules or, or even just in situations where we were starting to struggle as a team, I would go to them and say, this is what you wanted. Remember, I'm going to hold you accountable. Now we're struggling. So how can I help you fix it? I'm here for you, but you asked for this. And so I still have the power because I'm sort of like, well, I guess the best way to look at it is an orchestra. And a great orchestra has so many fantastic musicians. Some of them are, are some of the best in the world, but there's still one person at the front that is coordinating that orchestra, and they all look to that person with trust and respect. Yeah. So if you're that kind of coach that's empowering your players who are already great in the game, they're never going to think they're better than you. They're going to look to you to be the one to coordinate all of them. Mm. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Uh, it reminds me, actually, I, I saw a quote yesterday um, from uh, Michael Checker, you might know that name. He's the head coach of the uh, the Wallabies, the Australian national team, and they're uh, they're in the final this weekend against uh, the New Zealand All Blacks. And he actually he said uh, game day is pretty much his day off. Like he's it's on to the players now, and uh, you know I'm sure he just doesn't sit there with a beer in his hand and his feet up. But uh, and you watch him when the camera goes to him, he's definitely uh, invested in the game 100. percent But I like that mentality that hey I've We've done everything. I've done everything I can uh, in the week leading up to this game. It's and I've empowered the players to make the decisions, and it's up to them now. I love that. I I love that, and I love you said it that way because I never thought of it. But it is. I take a I take a deep breath when I get to the weekend because I'm like, okay, I worked hard this yeah. week, and yep. now it's time to sit down and watch and watch the boys reap the or the and girls coaching. Yeah, <laughs> reap the benefits of what they've done. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I, I agree, and it, it took me a while as a coach to get to that point, especially in my early days of coaching. I, I often I, I coached how I was coached, and it was uh, fundamentally flawed. Um, so it, it 
and I'm still kind of chipping away at getting, you know, that, but I've come so far that, you know, that game day, I actually really, really enjoy it. Very cool. Sounds yeah. like you do an excellent job. I try, try my best. Um, all right. Like looking, looking at your research um, that, that you've done, a lot of it looked at the relationships and you kind of touched on a little bit in the interview, uh, relationships between mental imagery, success words and uh, player performance. Um, what, what, are, what have some of your key findings been on that? So when I was in my first master's, I actually did my thesis on imagery and its impact on performance. And so I studied things like Jean-Claude Keeley, who uh, used to run the races. He was a skier and he used to run the races in his head before he would do the, the, the downhills. And so they would go and they would check the course and then he would get the course ingrained in mind. And then he would sit and run the course again and again and again, every turn, every movement of the ski, uh, every lean in his head. And one year going into the world championships, he got hurt and he could not, he couldn't warm up for the race itself because of the injury. They said, you can race on race day, but you really need to rest, rest that muscle as long as you can. So he did just imagery and he ran one of his greatest races ever wow. and he attributed to imagery. So they did research and they, they, they realized they put no, they put uh, electrical stimulation nodes on, on his quads when he would run imagery and be in the process his quad muscles were firing electrical impulses as if he was actually racing. So there was they, what they right. discovered was there was no difference between the race in the mind and the race on the body. So it was stuff like that. It was the you know studying the Fosbury flop, uh, not Fosbury. There was a um, there was a famous uh, high jumper who also would run his jumps before, and you still see it to this day. They, the high jumpers, what you'll see them running the jump in their head with their head moving as they run down the the lane, and then they hop up over the bar. I studied a lot of that and realized that. If we can get children to start to visualize and, and, and imagine the game and see the game and paint pictures for them, that those pictures are just as important as the physical. And so when we freeze our kids in a training session, we freeze them in a way that we can paint the picture and we stop them. Stop right where you are. Don't move. Everybody freeze. See where you are. Take a look. Let's evaluate the situation. And now that picture is ingrained and then give them you know those situations. The other stuff that I really discovered was, was Carol Dweck's research yeah, she's on, on mindset. Oh, yeah. she's absolutely nice. brilliant. And, uh, and, and, and again, she's a praise person, but where I was wrong in the beginning of my career was I was praising kids, but it was, it was vague, empty, nonspecific praise. And that doesn't do them any good. It actually creates failures because these children, all they do is they become praise junkies and they seeking my praise, but they're not doing the stuff. They, they'll seek the easier routes to get the praise. So they're not doing the stuff to get better. And so she realized that if you're praising, you need to praise something internal that they can control and something specific that they understand and it's measurable. And it's something that creates success. So like, instead of praising them for being quote unquote smart at math, she praises them for how well they solve problems, how they work through the stuff on their paper. So now she's got these kids that are becoming work junkies. They're becoming, they're focused on the development process. And then finally, I, I would say that the, the final piece was the, the work that, that I, the research that I did. So my TEDx talk, I, I were, researched that for quite a bit, but leading up to that was several years of starting to study words of starting to understand their power. It started way back when I was actually like 20 and I witnessed a coach use the word, I believe, you know, use the phrase, I believe. And he told a player he believed in him and I saw the response and it was like, oh my gosh, I've done this all wrong. But Mark Wa Robert Waldman, uh, did research and he's the one, he's one of the people that showed that positive words actually create growth pathways in the brain. Whereas negative words, they negative words, what they do is, is in everybody, but in a children, especially they uh, cause secretion of stress hormones because yeah, negative right. words are 
uh, are processed in the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain. And so that's that courage to fail thing. If you're screaming at your kids or even just using negative words, you're actually invoking the fear center and the fear center bathes that brains and brain in dozens of stress hormones. And those can't, you know, they can't be positive. They have to be destructive, but more importantly, they're closing pathways. And so I picture the brain as this big forest and, if you want a child to reach their their golden city of opportunity that's deep inside that forest, you have to create these big, wide, well-lit pathways. And, it, and the positive words are the ones that are creating those pathways. The negative words allow the forest to grow back over because they won't try that skill again. And when you don't try a skill, that section of the brain, that, that particular synapse where that was firing, gets pruned away or grown over because we don't use it again. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I remember hearing... Um Carol Dweck talking about that. She refers to it as uh, the threatened state and uh, the challenge state. That those the people under a threatened state are exactly that, filled up with stress hormones. And then there's this, you know, thirty minute lag where they're coming out of that. They've burned up all their blood sugar, and then um, you know they finally get back into the game, and it's all too late. Uh, whereas the challenge state is all about positivity and getting excited for the for the battle that's coming ahead. Oh, I love that. I, yeah. I, and I love that whole threat and challenge. She's so spot on. And it's like, and if you look at like the anxiety performance curve, it fits with what she's saying. You know, children, cause I always have coaches say, no, I get results when I scream at them. I mean, that's what the, that's what the coaches on TV do. They scream. Yes. But they walk a very fine line. They get those children, they get those players amped up and the anxiety is high because performance will increase with anxiety to a certain point. And then once you cross into that threatened state, like Carol Dweck talks about, the stress overcomes the physical ability of the body. Yeah. And so performance will plummet. And so it's like that reverse bell curve. And so you have to be very careful about how much anxiety you're piling on. And with children especially, their brains can't handle the anxiety as well as, as a more developed brain of an adult. Yeah. yeah, and some of those coaches on TV are actually doing it wrong too. Uh, exactly. We <laughs> joke, I joke with a buddy of mine. I've, I've done a couple podcasts with him. Um, on the Beyond the Pitch podcast, and and Anthony Rosso and I talk about the fact that it's like the Bud Kilmer. We think because we see the Bud Kilmers on movies like Varsity Blues that well, that must be the way coaches are. They must just you know humiliate and scream at everybody all the time because he gets results. Yeah, no, it's hilarious. Okay, on on to some of the things you're you're, you're into. Um, you've got a book coming out soon. What's uh, what's the story of that? Give us a bit of a, a rundown on on that. Sure, it's called uh, What's Your Echo, and yeah. it's it's uh, about coaching communication. And so it, it'll be based on some of the th- stuff we've talked about, some of the articles I've written already on my site. But it's helping coaches become better communicators with their athletes. And it includes being a great storyteller because children love a story. And so if you can teach things within the story, the children will pick it up. It's some of the more you know scientific pieces of here's what words do to the brain. Here's how you create like a Carol Dweck mindset. And it also talks about the ethics of the words we're using and, uh, and it gives, and it'll be, it'll be instructional in the sense that it gives a lot of hints of here's things that we want to do with children. Sit down at their level so they can look you in the eyes, take your sunglasses off so they can see your, your eyes, put the sun at their back so they're not squinting and they're focused on you. All these little simple things that a lot of coaches just miss because nobody's ever told it to them. Yeah. But the, you know, the idea is basically what echo are you creating on your children so that when you're, you stop talking, what's echoing in their brains as athletes that allows them to become better people. And so right. you create, your words create a culture of champions if you use them properly. And any idea on, uh, on when it's coming out? <laughs> How <laughs> fast on. I can write. Uh, I, I would hope that by, two, by, um, by the first quarter of 2016, I'll have it done. And then, and then it's a matter of uh, getting a publisher to pick it up or self publishing. Yeah. Well, let, let us know and I'll, I'll put it up on the website and I'll, uh, 
I'll get on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. I appreciate it. Thank you yeah, so much. No worries. And uh, you're also involved in um, a group called Changing the Game. Uh, what, what, what's the background there? What's, what's that organization about? So that's John O'Sullivan, who was, uh, he was an executive director at Rush Soccer Club uh, back a couple years back. And same thing, he was, he was seeing a lot of what I'm seeing. We have very similar beliefs and, and approaches. And he had kept talking to his wife, and she said, he, he said, I, I want to write a book. I want to write a book called Changing the Game. I want to write some books and help people better understand how we need to give the game back to the children. And she said, you need to pull the trigger. So he wrote the book, and he did a TEDx talk as well. Uh, and that was sort of what launched over the next couple of years, this, this project he's got where he travels around the country and meets with youth organizations, uh, coaches, uh, soccer clubs, and other sports, hockey, uh, football, and he talks to them about how important it is to give the game back to the children. One of the biggest things that he's done that, that resonates with a lot of people is that the five words you use with your child, and it's, I love watching you play. Yeah. And, and so a lot often. of it's great. Isn't it awesome? Yeah, and that's, you know, you don't even realize, sometimes you don't even know where it came from, but you, and he says he got it from a mentor of his, but you, you don't realize where, you know, where it came from, but you use that phrase. And then one day you end up talking to that guy and you go, oh my gosh, this is the guy that I use that I learned that phrase from. And that's, that's what happened with me is I did my TEDx. It went live a month later and I tweeted out on Twitter. And I, to be honest with you at that point in time, Twitter to me, I was just like, I knew I was saying stuff, but I didn't know who was actually listening. You know, nobody, nobody interacts with you as, as often as you, 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 you would think. And he immediately tweets at me and says, I just watched your TEDx and we need to talk. This is within a few hours of it going out. Okay. And I said to my wife, I said, John O'Sullivan just kind of, John O'Sullivan, I mean, this guy is, this, this guy is really making a difference in the game and he wants to talk to me. So I, we have a phone call and he says, Reed, I'm, I'm assembling a team of speakers and I, I want you to be a part of it. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm headed out to Bend, Oregon next week to train with him and then I'll start traveling the country uh, teaching his program and training uh, organizations, soccer clubs, uh, you know, coaches on exactly what he's been, been teaching. And I, I am absolutely thrilled to join him because he's pulled in a team of, he's got a sports performance specialist. He's got, uh, a, a physical, like a physical rehabilitation therapy specialist, a professor at Texas tech, whose specialty is sort of like uh, athletic training certified area. And so we've got somebody like that. We've got somebody from soccer. We've got Sky Eddie Bruce from soccer parenting. So it's the parent's perspective. You've got me, which is more on the creating multidisciplinary coaching. Uh, it's, and he's, he's just got a great team of people and we're all coming at it from different angles, but we all want the same thing. And I told him the other day, I said, this is like the perfect mastermind because we can work off of each other to actually make a difference and maybe start to change the culture of youth sports. Yeah, that's great. I think it's, uh, it sounds like there's going to be some really good work done. Um, and the other thing you're, you're getting, uh, getting into is you're starting up a podcast with, uh, Stuart Armstrong, who was on episode three of this podcast. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? What the goal is? It's called cynical foul. I, I gather it's not a, uh, a podcast about, um, upset bird watchers. <laughs> I like that one. I remember that one. <laughs> I, I'm a bird watcher myself. So I had to, I have to throw that in. I love that one. I, I'm going to have to use that. Yeah. It's, um, so Stu and I talked. Again, he was one of the first people to, to reach out to me, and, and Stu and I talked uh, for probably a good hour and a half one morning, and we recorded it and had a conversation, and I just really loved his philosophy, and I loved what he's doing, and we thought a great idea to do a cross-Atlantic uh, collaboration and cross-sport because, you know, he works in rugby and field hockey, and yeah. I am over in soccer. The idea of Cynical Foul is, and it had been brewing in my mind for about a year and a half, but I never had the, the courage to launch it, 
is that I think that a lot of times we commit a lot of fouls as coaches and parents and youth clubs and governing organizations that we know it's wrong. We know it's a foul. We know what we did is wrong, but we do it anyway. And, you know, in a cynical foul in sport, it's exactly that. A player gets out on a breakaway. You know that if you pull him down, it's going to be a foul, but you're stopping him from a clear goal scoring advantage or opportunity, and it gives an advantage back to your team. So you, you take him down. Yeah. And you, yeah. you take your card, but you save the goal. And you knew what you were doing was going to get a card. You knew it was wrong, but you did it for the good of the, game, the team. And I think a lot of times, coaches and organizations and parents, et cetera, we do things that we know probably isn't right, but we think we're doing it for the good of the kid or the good of the team. And the other side of that that my wife always talks about is cynical also has a definition where it's, you know, you sort of, it's it's you're you're skewing tra- you're skewing traditional rules and regulations. You're basically thumbing your nose at society's rules, and I I think there are those who commit the fouls and go, yeah, I knew it was wrong and I shouldn't have done it. And so having this podcast is maybe getting people to realize it's a foul. We need to stop doing it. You knew it was wrong, so just you know look in the mirror and say, may, may I call it? Let's move on. Yeah. And you have those others that they know exactly they know it's wrong, but they don't care at. All. They're just going to thumb their nose at society and its rules, and it's because they're doing it for ego, revenue, or res- resume. And so the podcast is centered around, and it won't be negative, but it's centered around what are the things that are happening in youth sports that may be cynical fouls. That if we start talking about them, people go, "Ooh, wow, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about that. I probably shouldn't have done that." And starts to open eyes and give the power back to the kids and make right. it more about the kids than about yeah. egos, res- re- revenue, or resumes. Great. Oh, I look forward to look forward to listening to that when you launch it. Um, and, and if people want to get in contact with you, uh, what's what's the best way to do it via social media and other other outlets? Sure. Uh, and I love I love chatting on social media. I'll stay up as late as I can. Sometimes <laughs> I try to answer everybody. So if you tweet at me, if I don't see it, tweet again. I try to because we don't. You know, we get better through conversation. We get better through interaction. For sure. And so, uh, and I love the community that I've now got that I'm I'm talking to. So on Twitter, it's at Coach underscore Reed. So at Coach underscore Reed is my Twitter, and that's the one I'm on the most. It's connected to me at all times. I try to get back to people. The other place, and if you follow me, I will follow back. So you can always private message. Is my website, and that's CoachReed.com. There's no underscore. It's just all one word. CoachReed.com. And on there, uh, I, I talk a little bit. I'm, I'm revamping it, but right now I talk a little bit about uh, my speaking engagements, and I've got some programs I can do for clubs where I can come in and train them on communication skills across the board, creating unbeatable, unbreakable, and unrivaled athletes and club experiences. And, uh, and it also will keep you up to date on some of the articles I'm writing and where my book is headed. And I do some training uh, through EDGEFI. They just, they just pulled me in as one of their featured coaches and it'll be a, a training space that I'm creating. I'll have a monthly fee, but it'll be minimal, like a cup of coffee uh, for for coaches, which will be primarily grassroots focused because there's where a lot of the coaches are, have the passion but don't have the resources. Yeah. And it's the whole, it's a lot of the, what we've talked about. It's just helping coaches find that multidisciplinary approach to what they do. Okay. I feel like we don't treat our coaches like professionals. Yeah. I don't. I don't mean it mean. I'm not. No. I, I love what our governing orgs are doing for the X's and O's. But if we want to be treated like doctors and teachers and other professionals are treated, then we need a multidisciplinary approach. And you know this because you and I did it. When we did our education background, we took courses on everything, not yeah. just on yeah. you know, reading. We took it on psychology and development and ethics. And I think our coaches need that too. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. All right. Well, we always end the show with uh, four, the four same questions. Um, Sadly, you're not from a rugby background, so uh, I've given you a nice little free hit here, and you can uh, throw in some soccer players 
uh, and coaches, and I'll just pretend I know what you're talking about. Um, when you were growing up, um, who was who was who was a soccer player that um, you know really really captured your imagination with the game? Uh, and I and I answered you, or I, I would say that it's more than just one. It'd be the Dutch team of the '88 Euro Championships. They okay. were coached by Rhinus Michaels, and but on that team, probably Marco Van Basten. I okay. just really liked his fluidity and the way he played. I do know those names actually. So uh, there you go. The, the Dutch team are um, they're they're always exciting. I, and then when Euro is on, and if I watch a few games, I always like to support them. It's crazy. I had that video. There was one called Tour 88 European Championships, and it was a video about that Dutch team. And I, it was it was old school video, and I wore the videotape out, and I have not been able to find a copy of it since. Oh, great. That's that's passion. Yeah. Um, and what about now? Who are who are some of the the players going around that you that you like to watch? Iniesta plays for Barcelona and for Spain. Okay. And the reason I like him is he's he's a central midi, and he's sort of one of those unsung heroes. Everybody talks about Lionel Messi. But Iniesta is so economical and surgical on the field. He's, he's always in the proper support angles. He's always got his teammates back. He plays the most perfect passes at the most perfect time because he has just this extraordinary vision and understanding of the game. And he's one of those guys that you tell your players, you know, if you're teaching them to check their shoulders and take a look over their shoulder to see what's going on around them, he's the kind of guy you say, just watch him. Just don't, don't watch anybody else on the screen. Watch him for five minutes. And now they've got a, a, that visual image of what a great midfielder is. And he's the orchestra. He's the leader of that orchestra and if you watch how those games are he orchestrates everything great all right uh, and coaches what uh who's uh who's a high profile coach that you you like what they're doing with their team so i, I would go with currently pep guardiola and and, I, and one of the reasons why i love pep and everybody does but everybody talks about his tactics what i love pep for is the is the intangibles because i've seen him, the quotes and i've read some of the books where he loves his players he cares about his players he tells his players that he cares about them so he's he's coaching the way you and i are talking and it's great to see somebody at that high a level still realizing that these are human beings and i yeah. need to empower them awesome. versus being a dictator which which clubs he at he is at um uh, Bayern munich right now okay and 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 he is really to be honest with you he comes from the dutch school because the dutch brought their concept to barcelona through Johan cruyff yeah. and ajax and pep was a captain for uh, louis van hall who had learned under you know the the Dutch system, and so Pep really has a lot of the Dutch system in in his style. And if you're going to do that, you go back to one of my all time favorites. And in my current logo, there's a rhino hidden in a, it. Looks like a soccer ball, but it's got a nose on it. It's a rhino, and that's a that's an ode to Rhinus Michaels because he's for me the father of the modern game. Started total football, was at Barcelona for a long time, and a myriad of EPL coaches stem from his legacy through players like or through coaches like Cruyff and and Van Hall. All right, nice. Okay, and uh, what about a young coach who's uh, kicking around in the trenches um, who deserves a shout-out for their work? I'll give a shout-out to one of my uh, one of the young coaches I work with. Her name's Alexa Bensick, and I've been working with her, brother, her and her brother for a while as players in this past summer, past winter, actually, a year ago, and then this past summer. She jumped in to become a coach in my camps. I do um, predator prep goal-scoring camps, and she is so patient with the kids, She's so engaged. She uses all the right words. Uh, she understands the game. She's so confident, and, and she's 15. So I see a lot of her in her, what I was like when I was that age. Right. And I feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm giving back to the next generation like my mentor did to me. Yeah. And I just I love her because she watched a couple of my sessions, 
And I said, do you want to run one now? And she said, yeah. And she says, no, I want you to stay out of the way, coach, because I got this. <laughs> and she was using – it was verbatim. She had she had the sessions memorized, and it was beautiful to watch. But being a coach, you want to step in once in a while. There was a couple times where I added some pieces and everything. After she got done coaching, I'd step in and say something. And she turns around at one point and says, I told you I had this, coach. And I just loved that confidence. Yeah, so she would, she's up and coming. Awesome. Oh, that's good to hear. I like stories like that. All right. Well, um you know, I've, I've learned a bunch um, in this interview. I've, I've really enjoyed it, and um, hopefully the listeners will get a, get as much out of it as I did. So huge thanks for coming on the show, Reid, and uh, I've really enjoyed chatting to you, and good luck with uh, all your, your, your ventures that are coming up. Thank you so much. It was a real honor to be on the show, and uh, best of luck to you. All right. Cheers. Thanks, Reid. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at RugbyCoachSCNR or via the website at TheRugbyCoachesCorner.com. Until next time, keep sharing ideas to make the game better.